Hello everyone and welcome back to the Film Score Podcast. Today I've got a special guest on this Devil's Night. Who better to raise a little hell with than Ben Lovett? Now you might be familiar with Ben on the many horror and other genre films that he's done, although I don't think he'd necessarily pigeon himself solely as a genre composer. He's really dipped his toes into everything. But today, we talk about what's certainly his biggest project to date. Not just in terms of high profile, but also in terms of the scope of his score as well. And that score is, of course, for the film Hellraiser. It's a very cool score incorporating a number of elements from Chris Young's score for the original, but also creating something of its own as well. And that's really an approach that Ben and David Bruckner took with this film which is effectively a reimagining of the original novella, The Hellbound Heart, wanting to maintain that feeling and what we know and what we're familiar with, but do something entirely new as well. And it's a pretty cool, gnarly film and a very good score. Of course, you can find out more about Ben on his website or social media, and of course you can do the same for me. And if you haven't checked it out yet, Hellraiser's streaming on Hulu, while Ben's score is available pretty much wherever you can think. Now, don't cause too much chaos on this Devil's Night, and have fun trick-or-treating tomorrow. But until then, sit back and enjoy the listen. Ben, I'm so glad you could join me today. How have you been? I've been good. A little crazy. It's been kind of a wild ride finally seeing this thing make it out into the world. We've been working on it for a long time, so it's been it's been a wild couple of weeks. That's awesome. And and as of recording, it released like three days ago. And I'll I'll thank uh, you and the rest of the crew. You released it on my birthday. So I thought that was a nice present for me. Well, we had that planned and it was a surprise. <laughs> so I'm glad. I knew it. <laughs> it worked out. Did that give you a chance to actually relax? Or when you finished up scoring Hellraiser, were you already off onto the next project? Uh, no, I, throughout the course of working on it, um, I just started to, other things came up, but I uh, sort of politely declined every other opportunity that, that came up because this thing took over my life to such an extent that I knew that I would really need a break. So um, <laughs> I have not quite slowed down and caught that break just yet, but I'm looking forward to catching my breath. I started on Hellraiser in December of what are what year are we in now? It was 2021, so uh, it was about nine, ten months straight of working on this to get it to this point. So, oh wow, that's the longest sort of that's straight through that I've done on a project nonstop. So, I'm I'm excited for it to be out in the world because that means it's over. <laughs> <laughs> so, working on something that long, did you get a, to a point where you were like, "I'm sick of working on this thing," or feel like having too much time meant? you were overthinking anything, or was it just more room and time to work? You know, it was, time is the most valuable currency on these kinds of projects usually, so even as the um, schedule would extend or, or push back and, and more time would be created, that was never a problem for me because I'm always so committed to just trying to get the best thing I can out of it. And there's usually... Um, the job calls for a, an effort that's greater than the amount of time that you have for it. And mm. so I never got sick of it or um, it was always kind of a blessing to have more time because it was such an immense amount of work to pull off. It was the biggest score I've done in terms of 
the amount of minutes that I had to write, the size and scale of the sound and the orchestration. And it was a new, a new level of a beast to slay. And so uh, even though I was exhausted and kind of brain dead and worn out um, at various stages of it, I welcomed the extra time whenever I had it. That makes sense. So actually, at, at what stage in the film did you come in? Because, you know, nine, ten months, I mean, that's several, several times more than your average composer gets on an yeah. average project, at least. Yeah. And, um, you know, I've done a number of films with the director, David Bruckner, and he prefers he's not the only one, but but he's one who I work with often that prefers me to come on as early as I can. And so that's how I prefer it. I, I sort of encourage producers and directors to bring your composer in as early as you can, you know, just because you you can wait to make that decision until the last minute doesn't mean you should. Mm -hmm. And so with Bruckner, I'm one of the first people that comes on board and we're talking about things at the script stage, you know, before they've even cast. That's a luxury that, that not everyone can afford. I get it. But when you're just sort of committed to the larger creative goal of, of trying to really get in there and outdo yourself make the best thing you can. You want to try to get as early as start as, as possible so the bad ideas don't have to go in the movie. <laughs> you know, you've got time to go through generations of things and throw things out and, and, and develop these ideas, and it takes time. So it starts very, with him, or at least on this, um, it started very early, and um, it gave me time for the ideas to, to gestate. There was also a lot to consider with this. You know, there was a lot to kind of, a lot of homework to do. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of uh, studying, kind of preparing myself for what we were what we were going into. Yeah, I mean, there's I don't even know how many films there are. I I think there's you know six like or eight 10? or something. Maybe. Yeah, I think, but I I, I, I think, think there's like ten of them. I would I would believe it. I've seen the first four, and I think that was a good stopping point, and even yeah. maybe like too many. I haven't seen them all. I will. Admit. <laughs> <laughs> I was told it was not necessary for what we were going to do with this so yeah prob probably the right what move. i needed to and yeah there's also a, a such thing as overstimulation too you know there was also just a bit of like i didn't at a certain point there's only so much that the work that everyone else has done on other iterations of this can inform you when the spirit of this was you know a reinvention of of the original ideas yeah ex exactly i mean it's you know, I don't know if it's considered a, a reboot or a remake or reimagining, but like it's very much its own project as well. And you wouldn't want to basically just be creating an amalgamation of 10 movies. And that's actually something I do want to get into in a minute. But first, when you're jumping in at the script stage, and obviously it's a little different, like you mentioned, having a couple movies at least to watch and going into the original novella, like what was some of the prep work of the first things that you did, and, and at what point did you actually start writing music? I actually started, as you mentioned The Hellbound Heart, I read the novel first, and mm -hmm. um, when I was told that we were going back to the source material and reinventing these ideas from Clive Barker's original inspiration, that's where I thought I should start. And so I read the novel, and I... You know, you're always looking for a way in. You're always looking for an original point of inspiration. And so in this case, you know, normally if you come on early, all you have is the script. You know, so it, when you can and if you can, you start writing from your own interpretations of, of the script. But with this, there was also this fantastic and iconic piece of literature. And so I started from that. And I would, would he has a very uh, unique 
lyrical prose. And I kind of wanted to draw inspiration from that sort of wellspring of ideas uh, as a way to get started. So I would write down little phrases that jumped out mm. to me. And then I would try to describe those as these little sonic experiments, just just things to, to bounce back and forth to Bruckner, volley over the net. Because when he's in prep and he's shooting, you know, I can send him things that barely qualify as music. They can just be a sound or a vibe or a texture or just, you know, just some little thing that was the day's work in scratching around, trying to figure out what the tonal palette might be. So I would write down, I think some of them were like, I remember one was a fitful phosphorescence. And there was one that was whispered professions. And another one that actually is a title of one of the tracks in the soundtrack, which was Perpetual Tempest. He just has this great quality of, of his prose. And, and these little phrases would jump out, verge of senselessness. So I would write that down and sort of go, okay, let's pull out some toys and see if we can get verge of senselessness down. What, is, what even is that? And that was just kind of a way to get started. And so what happens with those? Do they... Are they just kind of a, an idea in time or did some of them kind of inform your further conversations with David or come up as starting points for cues or aspects of the palette? Yeah, sometimes, you know, I get very inspired by sounds. Um, sometimes I get inspired by melodies or I hear or I'm chasing a melody and sometimes there's just a, a sound or a, a texture that, that leads to something. And part of that is working with this director in particular it's a very sound-driven endeavor with him. He, he's usually looking for something more out of the score than just musicality. Mm. He really likes to be very understated and subtle at times and try to communicate emotions in that kind of modern style where you're very much straddling the line between what one might traditionally call sound design and, and music. It's all score. It's just not always necessarily musical. To me, it's music. I mean, it's it's all music. It's just not music in the traditional sense. And that's something that is very kind of conducive to his style of filmmaking. And so even though we knew that we wanted to really capture and incorporate the spirit and, and sort of characteristics of the original films and the scores for those films, it also needed to sound like a David Bruckner picture. And to me, I knew that we would need a nice variety of, of these kind of tonal beds and textures and, and just sounds, just even when they're not, I'm not talking about tones and drones, I just mean, you know, even if it's, what happens when I put a cowbell on the bottom string of the piano and then hit it with a hammer, you know? It's not always just the textural meaning like sound design ambiences. I just mean the tactile quality of the sounds and things like that sometimes. Just, just seeing what really activates his imagination. And, you know, it might be that he comes back and says, oh, man, you know, number seven. I don't, what, I don't even know what you're doing there, but that feels like the movie to me. And then I go, okay, number seven. Let's, let's pull that back up and add some more to that. It's just kind of a way to get started. And so on, on that note, I mean, were there any particularly memorable, we'll call it unorthodox approaches to making sounds? Yeah, yeah, there were. There was... It was a lot of experimentation with, I guess you would say, less traditional sources, which is something I'm always generally up to in my film scores. We took a, uh, a Stroh violin 
which is, you know, a very odd, unique sort of relic of a bygone era. And, and it has this little small horn on it. And we disconnected the horn. And if you look up a Stroh violin, you can imagine we stuck like a giant gramophone horn onto the end of it. Huh. And it just gave it this really strange and unique sound. There were some layered bowed percussion sound. There's a musician named uh, Bobak Lotvapur that does a lot of work with Daniel Hart and a number mm. of other composers. And Bobak's a great composer in his own right. He's, he's just an excellent percussionist. And I had come across some of his work on the Green Knight mm. score, which I thought was fantastic. And um, I said, hey, you know, would you want to experiment a little bit with some sounds? And Bobak created these really wonderful textures using like sheets of metal and copper and frame drums and and bowing gongs, and we would layer these things together to create in the score what you would almost mistake as these sort of moaning, ghostly voices. And it's really just Bobak doing a lot of percussion stuff. Yeah. And when I would mix that with the choir, sometimes, you know, it would get really, really odd and, and um, unique. The other big thing we did as a sound experiment was we did a prepared piano that we called our bondage piano <laughs> because we sort of took this baby grand and and put all kinds of chains and wires and screws. And, um, you know, we had everything from ping pong balls and tinfoil, you know, taped to the strings. You know, it was one of these things that was really inspired by the visuals. And particularly when one of the, after the, one of the characters has received his gift from the Cenobites, sort of how that looks on screen kind of gave me that idea of, oh, we need to stick some screws in the piano for this. I love it. And, and, What's great about hearing that is it's like a completely different approach I'll take to the next listen. Because I think a lot of the times, even when you're listening to something closely, your mind's going to what instrument or source is expected. So, sure. Yeah. So here, you know, the the choir voices, I'm going to assume like listening that those are actually voices and not like layers of metal. So yeah. I'm I'm excited to have that to have that listen with a slightly different mindset going in. It's an interesting thing because I'll read some descriptions, you know, of the music. Um, I've seen a few, you know, otherwise very complimentary and very nice reviews of the soundtrack and all, and it will describe certain sounds and and it'll describe certain things as being, you know, this electronic thing or this other thing and, and you're sort of like that's actually you know like a cello um you know <laughs> up against a, a you know a resonator with a mic but that's kind of the idea right is you're trying to create something that is familiar but different you think you've heard it before but it just sounds a little odd and a little like how did they do that and i think that maybe i'm really driven by that because as long as i've been doing this stuff and making records and studios and scoring movies and just sort of someone who's generally obsessed with sound and just so interested in the way different sounds make you feel. It's not that often that I hear things and I don't know what I'm hearing. Now, melodically, I hear things all the time and I'm like, how do they come up with that? Or what an amazing, you know, but it's not as often that I don't, I can't identify the source of the sounds that I'm hearing. And when I can, and when I do, my ears really perk up and I'm going, how the hell are they doing that? What is that? So I, I think it's just the fun of um, of trying to come up with, with new colors to paint with. It's what I was talking with Colin Stetson earlier this year about his score for the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And like someone had sent him a question about what it was like using real chainsaws to make the score. And he looked at the <laughs> question. He's like, 
what are you talking about? There's there's no <laughs> chainsaws involved. It's just like all sorts of other weird stuff you'd never expect. And this feels like the same exact thing. But when you get in that situation of hearing a sound where you don't know how it's created or how they made it, do you fixate on that and, and try to figure out the source? Yeah, I mean, I had that with Green Knight, and so I just went and found the guy. <laughs> I was like, who's doing this stuff, and can he come play at my house? So, yeah, I really do. I chased that stuff down. Another one was in an Emil Masari score for Cajillionaire. Mm-hmm. There was this vocalist who was doing these really fantastic sort of high octave things that were doubled an octave below. And I really liked it. And, and I was like, oh, this is a great sound and such a killer texture in this score. I was like, who is that? I'm going to do a little digging and researching and figure out who that is. And sure enough, it's a small world after all when you, when you really get down into everybody who's working and doing these things. So I realized very quickly that that was Theodosia Rousas, who we have like 10 mutual friends. So I immediately <laughs> was just like, hey... Your voice is fantastic. I've got these ideas that I wanted to do with a with a vocal soloist in the score. You seem like from this, you're down to do like creative, different sort of interesting stuff. Because a lot of times you come across, you know, singers that are very classically trained and have these operatic skills and they're a little bit rigid and formal because it's all about rehearsing and learning a piece and performing it, not so much just sort of flying by the seat of your pants and mm-hmm. experimenting in the studio. My people are, are the, the ones that are somewhere in between those two worlds where they're, they just love their instrument and aren't afraid to sing badly or to play badly or to play a wrong note. It doesn't attack their insecurities to not really know what they're going to do, and we just sort of bounce ideas around. So a score like Hellraiser isn't that dissimilar than other stuff I've done, which is usually you know a healthy amount of traditionally approached written material that's charted up properly and performed and played, and then a lot of throwing stuff at the wall to see what sticks. Is that one of the allures of composing, especially composing in genre films, is like having a little room to play with like the, the unorthodox as far as those types of sonic approaches? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the genre stuff's really interesting because there's so such well-defined boundaries to work within, and yet everything's on the table, especially in horror it's an opportunity to tell a new story within an established framework. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to know where the rules are to to bend and break them. And that's always very challenging and exciting. It's also one where, and I mean, maybe this is true for all genres, but I really feel it in this one where as a storyteller, when your job is to communicate emotion through sound and music, it's like you're not necessarily only scoring the experience of the characters. Sometimes you're scoring the experience of the audience. And again, that's maybe sometimes true for all of that stuff, but I really feel it in this particular genre. I'm not more interested in horror or science fiction or any of these things than other styles. I like doing documentaries and comedies and all, but it's a it's a different kind of engagement. Uh, engagement, and I think that it relies on what the music is bringing to it a lot more, maybe than dramas and comedies. You know, I, I guess I don't know how many other people think this, but I often associate you with horror films in particular, but then you come out with something like for the documentary Stopped, which was, I can't remember, last year, the year before, mm-hmm. and like, mm-hmm. totally different. Right. But do you ever get worried of being sort of pigeonholed in horror genre specifically? Well, so it's an interesting thing about that is 
I suppose yes, but I don't give in to that worry because I just feel grateful for the opportunity to do mm. these projects. You know, making a movie still better than the next best thing you could be doing <laughs> most days for a job. So if that's the case, so be it. I really do love working in that genre. My concern or my worry is that I only have so many tricks up my sleeve. There's only so many ways that I can probably figure out how to do something new or different in this particular genre before I feel like I'm repeating myself or chasing something or trying to compete with a previous thing I've done. Or, And the bigger problem with that is just like my interests are so much broader than just one particular genre or style of music. In the case of something like Stuffed, anyone who knows me uh, and knows my musical history of other things I put out, like my songs and my artist records and all, the kind of music that's on that documentary score is as much me as any of this kind of spooky atonal, you know, mm. scary stuff. It's just that the films I've done in the genre have been the most successful. And so it starts to kind of create a picture or an idea that that's what I do, or I'm, I'm a horror music guy, but I'm not, I don't think of it that way at all. And like I say, if that's my fate, you know, there's, there are worse ones. I could have a real <laughs> job, you know. <laughs> Fair enough. And you did offer me a good segue of talking about doing things new, being reinventive, and that's kind of the, and, and we touched on this like 15 minutes ago, that's kind of where Hellraiser falls, where mm-hmm. broadly from the film itself, bringing in concepts that a lot of fans of horror broadly are familiar with, the puzzle box, the lament configuration, the Cenobites and Pinhead, the Hell Priest in particular, a lot of the familiarity, but trying to do something new with it. So that seems like one of the goals with the film and I assume with your score as well to like at least as it as it turned out you have some of Chris Young's original thematic material but then a relatively different broader sonic world too mm-hmm. yeah I mean going into this it, it was very clear right away how iconic and revered those original scores that Chris Young did for the first two Hellraiser films are. I mean, it's some of the most famous music in the genre. Mm -hmm. And for good reason. They're outstanding scores, and they're a huge part of what I think gives Hellraiser its specific identity within the genre. You know, it's something that's established as a very uh, musical franchise. And, you know, the principal challenge of of going into score a reboot or a reimagining, because it is very much those things versus, say, a remake, since we're not tackling the same story. It's not the same characters. It's not a new version of the original movie. It's a reimagining of the ideas from that novel. Mm -hmm. And so you're trying to balance the influence of the original film's music on the development of new ideas and knowing that the right balance or the right equation is probably finding the, the right balance between some of that, not too much, but just enough. But his scores, I mean, that, that was probably the biggest influence on this whole process because hmm. they really defined the sonic identity of the world of Hellraiser for decades. So the influence is inescapable. Even if you're trying to do something specifically different, you're still responding to the influence of, of what's already established. But at the same time, it's this great roadmap for understanding the landscape of how these films operate and like what all you can do with it. Like, like, I have Chris Young to thank for establishing these enormous parameters on what you can get away with in the music, because there's really no such thing as too much 
you know, in a Hellraiser film. It's huge. It's nuts. It's so big. But the story is all about pushing limits, and it's all about sensation and excess. So it's fitting. Um, yeah, that's true. Yeah. It really brings all that to the surface. But the other thing that I think his scores did that made it made them very unique, especially in 1987 and very groundbreaking, was, you know, I think it was his scores that brought the fantasy element into them. It brought the magic and it brought that part of the story into this marriage with these very sort of coarse, visceral imagery. And, and no one had ever seen anything like that before. You know, his scores have this, they're very bold, underlined emotions in the music. That's something that we knew we wanted to capture. But like I said, David's style really lends itself to these more subtle abstractions in the music. And so I knew that it would kind of be a two-part process, which is you wanted to be inspired to write new themes for the film that feel like they might belong somewhere in the classical, gothic, romantic sonic universe that Mr. Young had framed and have that influence be present and identifiable, not try to hide that, just embrace that. Try to capture the elegance that are in those original scores, even when introducing new melodies for new characters. But since the spirit of the whole endeavor was reinvention, David was always really pushing me to find new ways to implement those ideas into our score. He really pushed me to say, we shouldn't feel tethered to the way we've seen all this material approached in the past, but just use that as a point of inspiration to tell a new story and find a new sound to describe that story. It's interesting because there are you know, certain at times in the film and certain cues where like the main original themes are big and at the forefront and you get the full thing. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of instances where you'll have put in like the first two notes but it's mm -hmm. not in the same rhythm. Like they're, you know, slowed down and stretched out, but they're still there and it's just dropping very minor hints of the connection. It was a nice way to incorporate the material without you just being like, yeah, I'm just going to rely on Chris Young's original themes and hammer them in and that's what you're getting. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that that was part of David's uh, direction and part of his desire to have them. Um, it was kind of like the box. The box is this progression that we're moving through in the different phases of it and the different configurations. And there was kind of almost like a lament configuration version of how we were teasing out themes from the original score. And by the end of it, it's fully formed. The box is wide open and the score is just coming at you in all of its grandeur. But... To get there, it felt like we really needed to earn it because we could have always just thrown that at you for kind of cheap pleasures anywhere we needed to. But it felt right that we were starting over and to really respect the power of those themes to tease it out. And kind of it's also, you know, Hellraiser is a very horny. <laughs> so it's yeah. also like there's foreplay there. You know, it's part of the mm. material. So it's great that you pick up on that because sometimes it's um, it's in there, but it's like it's meant to be something that really delivers on multiple listens. So you realize in, in a track like March of the Cenobites, it's building, it's building, it's building, it's building, and the choir behind that build is playing that original Cenobite melody just in like quarter time. It's really slowed down and stretched out, and, and it's really abstracted, but then it hits, and it kind of hits its crescendo, and then we reveal the gasp for the first time. And then you get 
that iconic Cenobites melody, but it's not a big brass fanfare. It's sort of moved to choir and strings, and there were things like that where he really wanted to incorporate, say, that particular melody for the for the Cenobites from Mr. Young's original scores, but he wanted them to have a to take on a different form and feel. It felt right for the way the characters were being presented and, and they were being reinvented. That was true for for that moment. It's true for the scenes with Pinhead. And it, it started just to kind of become a thesis of how we would implement the original material. I do appreciate it. And I mean, I hope that fans of the original films do as well, because it's, it's actually like a, a nice way to incorporate it and to implement it all. Um, and I, mm-hmm. I do realize, unfortunately, the, the more time that I'm online, the more I realize how vitriolic fan bases of, of <laughs> things can be. Yeah, unfortunately, that's true. Yeah. I mean, was was that ever a worry in your mind? I mean, look, I have no idea if there's like a, a rabid Hellraiser fan base that's ready to jump on people. But like there is a broader like classic horror fan base that maybe could. Uh, so, mm-hmm. you know, was that ever a worry going into this partially beloved series, you know, beloved the first uh, one or two films at least and doing a new entry? I, You know, to be totally honest, I didn't really have any trepidation about taking it on in that way because I knew that no matter what we did, some people would like it, some people might even love it, and then some people will probably hate it regardless of what we did, and there was just no getting around that. Some people are going to hate it just because other people love it. That's just the reality of it. (laughs) It's just going to be part of the job on something like this. But I knew that everyone on board really cared about the material, and Bruckner inspired everyone to understand how important it was to get it right. And so my confidence was there. You know, we all understood that part of it, but it was never in the foreground, at least not for me. Maybe that was other people's priorities, but I wasn't going into this really excited to course correct the thing or Mm. worried about what people would think. You know, making movies is hard enough without saddling yourself with this expectation that you could ever please everybody. But I did think if anybody would give us a chance, it was Bruckner. Like, there was no question about his commitment to the material or his understanding of it or his persistence to make something that lived up to the name. Well, I mean, and I do think that that's kind of intrinsic in both the films that he makes, but also the music that you make. Putting it simply, it's like, it's not going to be for everybody. I just think that a score of yours, for instance, like, if everybody in the world was like, at worst, no, this is fine. Sure. Seems like it wouldn't be your type of music at all. In my view, the biggest sin that a a film or an album or anything can make is just not eliciting anything at all. Yeah. Just more disposable content. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Where you you listen to a 40-minute album or watch a 90-minute movie and you finish it and you just go, eh. And the one thing that I know that no one else ever really will outside of a small group of people is we worked our asses off on this. And everybody, we really cared to try to make this as good as we can. But you always have to remember that, like, the director, the composer, the actors, we're we're working with material that there's a lot of decisions made about what it's going to be that come to us in the, it's already in there, right? There's no, like, changing the story or changing what kind of movie or... So like the craft of the film and everything that most of the people I was working directly with are responsible for was nothing but hard work and love. We're trying to make the best and most enjoyable 
entertainment product within the parameters of what we've been given. And that extends to how much time you have, what you can do with the, you know, the means that you're given. Now, I get it that like you don't really, a common fan, you don't really have to consider all that to just throw your opinion on Twitter. They're entitled to it. It's fine. But the one thing that these ideas that like we didn't understand the material or, or any, any kind of comment from somebody that like it's laughable, like, you, you look silly saying stuff like that, you know, out there, people. We really did do our homework. We really did know the testament is like you get Clive Barker standing up there at the Q&A after the premiere and just saying such wonderful, amazing things that we were all knocked out and flattered by about how much he appreciated what David had done and, and advancing and bringing it into a new era and all this stuff. It's, um, it's surprising to me that people are so resistant to allow something like this to, to exist when the reality is, hey, man, the original's still there. We didn't undo it. Mm-hmm. We didn't take it away from you. You know, Go watch it anytime you want. It's just a new story. And I think to me, it's like if you really love the world that Clive Barker created with these ideas, when you go back and read that novel, you realize there's so many stories you can tell inside of that universe that um, why would you want to limit it to just one? Absolutely. And I, I actually had a lot of the Hellraiser graphic novels as well. And candidly, I have no idea whether the like the underlying logic is really consistent or anything. But, mm-hmm. like, the most interesting aspect is just, and you're totally right, you read the original novella, you watch the original film, and you go, oh, these creatures have been around since time immemorial or for centuries. Mm-hmm. There are unlimited stories to be told here. And so it's so much fun being able to see different iterations, different people's takes on what a Hellraiser story could be. And look, frankly, you get similar things with Star Wars, where your random mad fan has issues with something or, like, thinks that he knows better than George Lucas, and it's the same thing with thinking you know better than Clive Barker. Yeah, and I think that stuff usually, it's pretty transparent that it has everything to do with personal identity and nothing Mm -hmm. to do with the actual content that you're arguing over. You know, based solely on the hard work of, of, of what was put in front of you. I mean, I think that it's our movie is, despite anyone's subjective opinion about what they may think about, whether they like this or that, it's a pretty objectively quality piece of Hellraiser content. If you like that world, it's a pretty well-made dinner that's being served to you. You know, you might not like the sauce on the, <laughs> on the pasta, but, you know, poke around in there. <laughs> well, and look, the, the other aspect of it is... There were a number of Hellraiser entries that were literally made just so whoever it was could, like, maintain the film IP rights. Sure. They would just shoot these out because then it it extended how long they could have the rights. That's right. For people that are fans of Hellraiser, it should be really exciting that a Hellraiser film was made to actually, like, make a good Hellraiser film. I mean, there's also like, you know, a lot of that world is just like people resistant to the idea that Pinhead's a woman or, or, or the casting choice or anywhere, whatever. So there's a lot of things that people who have opinions that don't really have anything to do with Hellraiser and everything to do with their own personal politics. So, you know, f- those guys anyway. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I, I, I don't think there's a, there's a better stance to take. And <laughs> look, but I, I actually like... I think there's more that I could ask. I could spend a while picking your brain, but that's a very appropriate place to to wrap things up on. (laughs) (laughs) 
Haters be damned. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah, sure. So once again, I, I really do appreciate you joining me. And, and honestly, going way back, you were spot on in that the score begs for repeat listens, especially after watching the film. There's just there's so many little things to catch. And now, for all those listening, once you've heard a couple of the tricks and secrets, there's going to be even more to catch. Yeah, I will say, too, is just jumping off that is that, like, the album is a lot more than the cues on mm-hmm. a playlist. The way I usually tend to do these things, and I absolutely had to do it for Hellraiser, which is I go in and resequence, re-edit, and remix the music to give you a listening experience that's, that is the music in the film, but the way that it's combined and presented to you gives you a listening experience. It's a way to revisit the ideas and the feelings in the film as a listening experience. So it, it's kind of like the film is one presentation of the ideas of this story. And then the album is a is a is another one. It gives you a um parallel way to jump into going back through the the experience of it without always just watching it. So I encourage everybody to if you liked it, the score is on screen for eighty percent of the runtime of the movie. So odds are you find little things in there on the album that you didn't even realize I was around, scratching around in, in your subconscious while you were watching. And that's the fun of it. I do love that because, you know, there are some people that love just hearing, you know, quote, complete score releases that just have every single piece of music just mm-hmm. thrown into an album. And it's like, it's chronological, so it, it kind of fits. But like, sometimes a 30 second cue that works on screen, like doesn't really make sense as a standalone track so i i appreciate maybe it's a extra time and a bit of a pain in the butt on your end but like making it really appropriate for that standalone listening experience i agree and i don't it is it is that but i but it's worth it for me like in this case there was 97 minutes of music i had to make for this Mm. movie there was 55 individual pieces i don't even want to listen to a 97 minute (laughs) record (laughs) yeah so it's like getting 55 pieces in 97 minutes down to a 23-track, 58-minute record was a real challenge. And not everything can go in, but not everything really needs to for the goal of what the album experience is. So I hope that uh, people will find their way into it and you know throw on some headphones and get lost in it because that's just another way to, to go into another, you know, another artist's interpretation of, of Clive Barker's ideas. And you know what? I think so. You know, you said you were... You, you came across comments and tweets and whatnot of, like, people saying the music's shit, which, of course, that's going to happen. But, like, honestly, the people that I've seen have been, like, across the board really positive about both the music in the film and the standalone release. And I'm hoping that, as it's, you know, it's only been out for three days, so, like, more people continue yeah. to find it and listen because it's, it is it is a cool release. Cool. I appreciate it. Yeah. I mean... I worked. I worked as hard on this as anything I can ever imagine. So it's um, it's nice that it's out there and it, it belongs to everybody else now. Awesome. And you know what? This is it's a much more positive note to end things on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Because ultimately, for me, it's all about the work. I mean, that's why it's it's not. I don't do this kind of work for the parades because there ain't any for the composer. You know, it's a you have to love the work and you have to love the collaborations. And in something like Hellraiser, it's such a unique opportunity to be given something so gonzo and over the top and so limitless in what you can do. So it's such a great opportunity to to push yourself and see if you can go a little further than you have before. I think it works out. Ben, on, on that note, 
I'll let you go on. Enjoy the rest of the afternoon. And, and once again, thanks for jumping in a chat with me for a little while. My pleasure, man. Thanks for having me.